good morning, everybody. Mark Coxon, and welcome to AV Daybreak. As always, I'm here with the Canadian phenom. I'm the AV phenom, but Jared Hillman is the Canadian phenom, the AVpreneur. How are you, Jared? I'm doing great. It's Canada Day. It is it Canada Day? Is that is that yeah. box is that Boxing Day or just Canada Day? Is it are they different? I don't they're, know. They're they're completely different. Man, Canada Day celebrates a. Uh, like an unboxing of amazingness. Okay. Yeah. Got you. That's what I. That's what I would say. That's what you would say. <laughs> and it's a poor. It's a poor saying. I was trying to play off of your boxing day, but it, it just did not fare my way. It did not work. You know, sometimes when you're doing this live without prep and out of safety net, you know, you make you make an unboxing joke that just doesn't go over so well. Yeah, which is funny because according to my my Kobe index, I'm I'm born to be like ad lib and and improv and i mean it's not foolproof right so yeah i i think it's wrong because all the feedback is is that you're pretty funny that's what i've, I've heard <laughs> i don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing <laughs> it's been good so how's your week yeah week's been good nice. um so so today we're off so i'm actually today is a holiday for me so i'm i'm celebrating i'm celebrating canada day first thing uh, doing the podcast. Gotcha. But I looked at it as an opportunity because otherwise I would probably sleep in and not do anything. And I was like, no, I can't let that happen. I'm going to get up at 7am. I'm going to visit with my, with my California friend and he's going to tell me how to get somewhere and some cool stuff about surfing and other stereotypical California things. Well, I appreciate you waking up early and not wearing your plaid pajamas to the show this morning. Flannel. Flannel. Sorry. You know what? Plaid, for, plaid and flannel seem synonymous, but they're not, they don't actually have to be. Flannel and fur. <laughs> flannel and fur with the fur collar, yeah. the flannel, the flannel with pajamas with a, with a fur collar. If it's really denim, cold. Yeah. If it's really cold, coat. the hat with the flaps that tie under the chin. There's right? going to be a name for that hat. I, I don't know it. <laughs> Ask Matt Scott. If, if you know Matt Scott from Omega AV. I do. Yep. He's a Canadian. I figured all Canadians knew each other. Because we, you, we, you know what? I, I was in a room one time and there were a few Canadians in that room. It was, uh, sorry, one of the virtual happy hours. Uh -huh. And I swear we just played right into the stereotype because the next thing we knew it was like, oh, hey, I'm so-and-so. Oh, where are you from? Oh, hey, do you know so-and-so? And I'm like, oh, gosh, we're playing, <laughs> we're playing right into the stereotype, you guys. Stop, stop, stop. Well, it's funny that you brought up virtual happy hour. And yeah. I think that's funny because today we have a guest, somebody I didn't know, even though no. she's, she's in my backyard. She's right here. Like yes. close to where I live. Um, somebody she could you be your met, mentor. I would love that. I don't think she would accept <laughs> me, but <laughs> you know, that's there. Those are proximity is not the only requirement usually oh, for right. somebody to Sorry. accept you to accept you as a mentee usually there has to be some potential that they think that they can fulfill otherwise being a mentor is pretty disappointing <laughs> yeah yeah but you met uh kelsey balch in an av happy hour at infocom connected i did yeah it was great um but, and this was remember last week i spoke about how i ended up in a room with more more women than men in one yes. of the uh, private virtual rooms yep and um she was one of them and it was great because all all the women in my room had a different background 
So, not, a vir not a virtual background. You're talking like an actual industry industry background. Industry background. Yeah. Um, however, Kelsey did have the most interesting one because she was she was in this giant server room. Like she, we had to find out if it was real or fake when she was in the room because so it just she, it, it looked virtual. But it so was she, it was yeah. She was the queen of background. She had an interesting industry background, and she had a great virtual slash yes. maybe in IRL type background. Yes. Going on. Well, cool. Well, let's call her. I think I think we need to dial up. You know, I'm sorry this morning. You know, if I'm a little glitchy or something, I'm uh, my internet went down, so I had to revert to AOL. So when I call her, <laughs> we may hear like some old modem sounds or something hey, I, when we when we call I have her one, up here in a second. I, I have one request before you get on that, Mark, because yes. I'm gonna blow the lid off right now that Kelsey works at the Grammy Museum in LA. Got you. So in your before we bring her in, in your best Californian voice, I want you to tell me how to get to the Grammy Museum from oh, San Diego. To the Grammy Museum. Uh, let me, I, I have to. Even, I, even if it's from San Diego to LA. From San Diego to LA? Yeah, give me, give me your best California, Californian impersonation. Okay. Right. So like first you go up First Street and then you jump on five and you go north on five. And then if you want to get to the Grammy Museum, uh, like you could stay on five all the way to 10, but usually that's a problem because there's like <laughs> construction around Rosemead. So you won't cut over on the 105 and you head up the 110, then get off maybe like Figueroa Street. I think maybe somewhere up there. Perfect. <laughs> maybe now, maybe I, something somewhere up I there. Think I, I don't even, I think I could put my Google Maps away and probably get there you on might, my own if I had I to. Don't, Full disclosure, I don't know the actual address of the Grammy Museum, right? Probably could have got you a little closer than where, where I just got you to. I know where the Getty's at. That's over off the, that's off the 405. <laughs> All right. So let me, I will, I will punch in Kelsey's super secret Zoom ID in my AOL modem counterpart. You've got mail. Thing here. <laughs> we do. I think I think I hear her. Kelsey, are Hello. you there? Greetings. Greetings. <laughs> She's she has she has no she has no clue what we're doing right now, Jared. We needed okay, we needed that we needed that response on the space computer dial in. That would have been yes, fun. Yes. That would have been that would have been awesome. Greetings. Greetings. <laughs> well, Kelsey, thank you for getting up. I mean, you're on the West Coast with me, so you know this. For, for Jared, he's complaining he had to get out of his bed on Canada Day at 8, but we got up at 6 to do this, so I appreciate you doing that with us. Yeah, no problem. I like yep. waking up with the Well, you both, you both are going to work today, sort of. Yeah. I, I celebrate right? Canada Day. Why not? Yeah. We're taking a day with off. With your Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> it actually was nice because I got to get, you know, half prepared for work in the, the homework office uniform where you wear the nice shirt on top, but then yoga pants until I'm ready to actually go into the oh, office. Yes. So um, it was a good excuse to just get that process started. Yeah. So we were talking um, on a call yesterday and some people were saying that um, they liked some of these virtual meetings from a sales perspective because they were like, you know, when I go in a room and I visit someone, there's 10 of them and one of me and I get really nervous. Like my public speaking anxiety comes out, but on zoom, um, 
it kind of equalizes it because we're all just in boxes. So I don't feel like it's mm -hmm. one team against the other. And I said, I think the real thing is, is that, you know, in, you know, in public speaking, they always say envision people in their underwear and that makes you more comfortable. And in, on a Zoom call, most people actually are in their underwear. So it's like, it's totally, totally easy to do. Yeah, I actually thought you said that we're all in our boxers, not boxes. So that Box. actually applies. <laughs> That's so funny. Well, Kelsey, instead of asking you to give your narrative, because we feel like that gives you way too much control of our show, um, Jared and I, usually what we do to introduce someone that um, people may not know uh, is we do something called Profiled, where we go slightly through your LinkedIn profile together live with you here on the show. We, we didn't practice this. There is no, there is no safety net. Um, so we, we're probably going to tear through your LinkedIn profile a little bit, ask you about a couple positions you may have had and your transitions between, and then, um, and then see where things go from there. So okay. you're, you're about to get profiled, Kelsey. Whew. All right. Did you even look at her LinkedIn profile, Jared? I don't even have LinkedIn. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you, you guys don't have it up there. Yeah. <laughs> no, we just, we just got a high five. Um, I, d I do actually, yeah. I, so I was looking through it because, you know, the difficult part about, so, so Kelsey's title. And first, actually, I want to clarify, is it last name? And I might've missed this part. It's Balch. Yeah. You or got Bulk. It. Okay. Bulch, he did get yeah. it. <sighs> okay. So you are the production design manager at the Grammy Museum. Yes. Yeah. And to a foreigner, that sounds really exciting. It's um, yes. right. Cause I'm like Grammys. <laughs> awesome. It is. Yeah. It's pretty yeah. exciting. So you must have a ton of celebrity friends. I wouldn't say friends, but um, I've worked Who, with different yeah. celebrities. Yeah. Who is the most famous person that you got to work with through the Grammy museum? We'll say. Um, and you can't say us because I mean, before you met us, before you <laughs> met us while working at the Grammy Museum, who other than us is the most famous person you've ever met? Um, I would say more recently, it would probably be um, the Backstreet Boys or Dolly Parton. Sweet. Ah, very cool. And what a, what a like eclectic. <laughs> I want to, I want to hear that collab is what I want to hear. I want to yeah, hear. Was it during I, a I duet? Want... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really fun. You get to work with artists a lot. I, I work a lot with different artists. So um, you just get to see a different variety. It depends on your genre preference of who you would consider most famous. Um, but yeah, it's really fun getting to know them for a brief stint of time, help their dreams come to reality. That is so cool. Well, yeah. this is you, your, your background. Your background is interesting because when I look at, you know, when I go back, when I go back to education, I see, I see you have a bachelor of fine arts in interior design. And we talk all the time about people yeah. falling into AV. How did you go from interior design to your first job at Bora? Was Bora in New York or Bowra? Was yeah. that a, was that an interior design job? Um, Bowra was actually an events um, company. They do a lot of large events for, you know, Fortune 500 companies in New York City. Okay. Um, but what actually brought me to New York City was my internship at the New Museum of Contemporary Art. Um, I did study interior design, and I really loved how one of my professors 
noted interior design as sculpture you could walk in. Uh, it just kind of blew my mind. So um, I started thinking a lot about spatial design and bringing ideas to life. So museums are always my safe space uh, growing up. And so I got really fascinated with museum and exhibition design. Um, I had a professor named Hendrik who um, was teaching me 3D modeling. And um, he, had form he had worked formerly in New York City um, at the new museum. So he said, hey, if you're interested in this, I know a really great opportunity for you if you're up for it. Um, so I left uh, good old Virginia with a suitcase and a dream and moved up to New York and started my internship at the new museum. So that's wow. what got me there. That's awesome. Sculpture, you can walk in. I like that a lot. That's, a, yeah. that's really cool. Is New York where you received your accomplishment for English <laughs> as a language? <laughs> I just noticed that. Have you ever noticed that, Mark? That on LinkedIn, no. they list. Oh, yes. She has an accomplishment that she's learned one language <laughs> being English. How is that? A, I'm, I, I think I have to inquire to LinkedIn about the level that we're setting here. That seems like a you, low bar to me. Unilingual. I'm going to start. I'm going to list that on my LinkedIn profile, actually. Unilingual. That's going to be my first thing now. Not like, yeah. not, not AV or, or Unilingual. Unilingual. I, I like yeah. this. I like That's this great. idea. I actually didn't understand anything you guys just said, so I don't know why it says I'm proficient in that. <laughs> it doesn't say, no, no, it's, it's not that you're proficient. It's an accomplishment. A, it's an accomplishment is that you have one language known as English. Yes. Excellent. I thought that's, that's hilarious. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> so... I like that. I didn't so go Kelsey, back. I didn't go back that far, man. I need to. I need to start scrolling down more. I did notice. Haven't. Yeah, your prep work. Your prep work is slacking. Jared's certified in time management through LinkedIn. I am. Which means that he, instead of doing work, he was doing classes on LinkedIn, which I don't know how gets you certified in time what, management. But you have two. Mo no, it's it's you have two monitors set up, and okay. so on one monitor you just start your course. Okay. And you just let it do go through the course and then you you know by the time you're done i actually i maxed out at certifications last week oh Did you well know that? you can only yeah. list a, so many i forget what it was it was like three three hundred or something so i didn't pick up on the on the english but i did pick up on something that um for someone as dare i say young as kelsey um, something that I thought was very interesting on her LinkedIn profile that Kelsey has been a 16 millimeter film preparator. Did you see that? For I five did. years. Working with 16 millimeter film. How'd that happen? Um, so at the new museum, um, it's a contemporary art museum in New York where they turn over the exhibits every I would say four months or so, the entire museum, it's probably about 40,000 square feet. Yep. So it's a really intense schedule. Um, there's a lot of different time constraints. Um, our team, the exhibitions team, what we would do is we would work with the curators who would um, then work with the artists and they would um, formulate an exhibition. Um, I would work with them on 3D and exhibition design using 3D modeling, um, SketchUp primarily. And then um, we also worked in tandem with a team of freelance art handlers who would come in and be hired for the installation period to then bring the exhibits to life. So um, reconstructing walls, um, bringing the art in with the registrars, handling um, 
really valuable artworks and um, installing them and then maintaining them until the next exhibition. So it was a really high powered, high functioning um, turnaround time. And so with contemporary art, you never know what you're gonna get. You could get a large scale painting that needs to be stretched on a canvas um, that um, you know has some weird um, parameters around that happening or you will get an entire AV show where we're building an anechoic chamber that's 22 feet tall and 24 feet wide. Um, so a lot of times with 16 millimeter, there's a special looping machine. It's really cool. Um, it takes the film and it loops it on almost like a platter and then the, the arms stick out and it just goes straight through the machine because you want the film to be playing on loop all day. Um, and that kind of was what started, I think, a lot of my AV interest is just this older mechanical audiovisual technology and um, learning about the, the audio strip and how it works um, and the projectors itself. But then, you know, it's, we're a small team. So sometimes you just have to learn um, whatever the next yeah. uh, artist's artwork is. And so I, I just had a knack for tech and video um, projections and monitors. And I just got really interested in it and I, I found myself at this really great intersection of art and tech um, so I would start to manage all the AV installations for artists and um, film became a really fun thing because then I would go to different galleries and museums and um, meet with all these really great film nerds and start installing their uh, I say that in the most loving way but uh, <laughs> installing their film projectors um, for them so um, it's it's a very diverse way in which I got there, but um, it just kept growing from there. That's awesome. And and if anybody had to do what I just did, which is look up anechoic chamber, Jared, an anechoic yep. chamber is a room designed to completely absorb reflections of either sound or electromagnetic it's sound, waves. Yeah, that's what they test. Um, I think when we, you know when you see like dB readings on yeah. on devices and projectors and stuff, that's where they they put them in there and they test them. So what I, interesting, interesting sidetrack, you being Canadian and, and Kelsey min, mentioning anechoic chambers, I heard that Canada has their own sound lab with anechoic chambers for voicing speakers. Like it's an actual national lab that oh. companies up there use, which is why most Canadian speakers um, are voiced very similar. But Totem Acoustics, if you know those guys, the, the, funky, the funky speaker company Totem, uh, decided that Canada built that wrong, so they built their own anyway. Just a just an interesting. That sounds fact. sounds right. <laughs> sometimes sometimes I wish Canada was an entire anechoic chamber as a country. Yes. <laughs> sure, you take your aviator fur cap off before you go in for the sound testing. Uh, oh, ah, that's a good tip. That's yes. a very good tip. I'll have to remember that next time I go in. In the anechoic chamber. In, <laughs> hey, so here's, here's a question for you, um, Kelsey, because I think one of the things I've always struggled with, and I've, we, like, I have experience in doing museum exhibits as well. Um, not, I'm sure, not even close to the level that you've had to, you've had to come up with. Um, She's grunt, grunt work. Jared. what I would say. Yes. Being an exhibitionist in a museum is not the same. Well, that's where I was going. I was saying, just how are you not arrested? <laughs> <laughs> I was just um, going to say, just to clarify. So, he, so, so when did you start really, it, was that being that in that position of the 16 mil, was it perpetrator? 
Is that what you were? You were a six- yeah. <laughs> perpetrator. <laughs> <laughs> um, is that when you started going from your more physical assets to your digital assets? Is that kind of when you started transitioning into more technology-based exhibits, would you say? Yeah, I don't think there was a um, swift transition like that. I, I, um, I was doing a lot of tech work, installation work. So yeah, we were hanging paintings and installing sculptures on, um, in the galleries, but the 16 millimeter, it just, it felt like I had a knack for this little yeah. niche of the art world that I wanted to be preserved. But I had been hanging projectors um, and TVs and, and things like that before. Um, it, it's really interesting because sometimes you'll have an artist who will come in and they're just so flexible. They just want it to look good in a space. And they're like, here's my video art that I made. This, and they're just excited. And then sometimes you have an artist who will come in with an already pre-drawn floor plan to say, I need you know, a 16K projector and mm. these speakers and it must be tuned in this way and it has to have carpet and the walls must be this exact color. And so, um, you know, you want to meet these requirements because it, it technically is an artwork and that you get into these right. hypothetical debates, you know, does the artwork exist if the room is not the way it was specced or not? Um, and then- That's deep. Yeah, <laughs> so you have to- Does, does anything know, exist that. really? Yeah. <laughs> is everything art? <laughs> yeah. Is everything art? Yeah. Um, and so I, I loved going down those wormholes with people and figuring out uh, what we could um, actually manage in the space, um, the, the expectations versus the reality with them. And sometimes you would have these perfect uh, specs and you'd be like, this is great. I totally understand why you want this. Sometimes you'd be like, why did they want that? I just... <laughs> So it's like any other client, sure. right? Um, and so you learn to speak the language to them and to convey it in a way that makes sense to them and then do the process of installing it. So on your team at the museum, on your team, do you have more artists turned AV technicians or AV technicians turned artists? Like where, what would you say your team is made up more of? At the new museum, it was um, a lot of artists turned AV tech. Um, yeah. You find often in the theater spaces that there are AV techs in the museum world. Um, at LAC, I, after the new museum, I moved to Los Angeles and then I worked at LACMA, um, which has a really large exhibitions team. They have their own full-time art handling staff that only does artwork. Um, however, the audiovisual components were myself and a colleague. So I was only, I, I, I zoned in and only did AV components um, and they called it time-based media. So that's any type of immersive AV environment. So right. VR and, and things like that. So in that realm, it was just a really small team and we were both, um, he was more of a, a tech person who came into the art world and I was coming from the other side. Um, whereas at the Grammy Museum, our team is essentially just myself and then I contract out per specialty. Um, we have a curatorial team that does the exhibits for um, artifacts and, and artwork. Um, but then for AV, it's just uh, myself. Oh, and then I have a counterpart um, who manages all of our exhibits that travel on the road. Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting mix in in the uh, museum spaces, designing exhibits that are traveling exhibits versus, you know, your fixed exhibits that are in the space. I used to work for a company that did uh, that did exhibits there. And if you know, do you know Brandy Alvarado, Kelsey, at Mad System? She's part of, she's the women's 
the Avixa Women's Council uh, person out here in California. Chair? I think she is the chair. Yeah, right, Brandy. She was just named like number eleven. She's not on the call, Mark. You can't. She's the number she's, eleven. She's not on the call. Power. Well, the reason I mentioned her, um, she works <laughs> at a company called Mad Systems, which does a lot of museum work. I worked at Mad Systems for four or five years myself, and so um, I always found the museum space very, very, very interesting. When I want to make a bridge into content, but I'm going to do that with a story because um, when you're talking about uh, art, you know what is what is art. I have a friend, he's, he works at a company <laughs> called Display, and Display just does art installation um, and storage. And so sometimes they'll do hotels, sometimes they're doing offices, sometimes they are doing museum work. Um, there are some statues of skydivers at one of the malls here that are like these big bronze statues that weigh thousands of pounds, and they had to figure out how to move those around. They, they do some really interesting stuff for people. But uh, one time he told me, art is anything you can get away with. That's what he told me. Um, yeah. But one of the installations he was working on, like what Kelsey was talking about, um, was this, this uh, was a video, it was a video exhibition. And it was, um, you know, just, uh, it was pictures of women in purple dresses, for the most part, um, just video of women in purple dresses. Um, and that was the, this was the looped piece of art. And so when I was going through this to, to bring the technology piece in, it's very interesting. We were just, he like, he didn't, you know, he was from the world of, of hanging pictures and things, and they would hang TVs and things of that nature at times, but most of the time people would just play a DVD or something like that. So he wasn't familiar with like, um, you know, like digital signage players or some of these things that we see, you know, all the time that where you would put the files on a compact flashcard and push them into a, you know, put them on a player and let it just run on loop and be an appliance and not have to, you know, put the DVD and set up the AB loop on the, on the player. Um, we did one for him and this was in, uh, we, well, I just pointed him in the direction of some players and he picked one out. And then when he picked it out, the artist was very unhappy with like the quality of what was going on with their art. And uh, so I was trying to help him navigate like what he bought. And, uh, and I was calling the, the folks and they were, this player only supported um, 480 lines interlaced. So it was a 480i. <laughs> player so you know pre-dvd quality player and uh i i called the company on his behalf I, I forget the name of the digital signage company and even if i knew it i probably wouldn't say it right now but uh i called it and they're like i'm like we're nothing's nothing's 480i like everything's everything's high definition or ultra high definition or and he was like well you know in the asian market you know, there are a lot of CRTs that they use for digital signage. So we still make these 480i players. I'm like, well, you, you didn't drop ship this to, to Singapore or, you know, you, you sent this to Orange County, California. Um, so maybe that would have been a cool thing to tell, tell the poor guy. We, we figured it out for him. But when you're, um, when you're navigating that, Kelsey, like uh, you say, you know, sometimes the artist is very involved. Sometimes they're not. Um, what is your, you know, what do you feel your responsibility is as, as, you know, someone who does that to make sure that the integrity of, of whatever the content is, um, you know, is, is actually what's on display in your spaces, sound wise and things like that. I mean, you're, you're dealing with the Grammy museum with a space that's, you know, some of that space is very, um, I've been in there. There's a lot of hard surfaces and things. So, you know, you're having to, you're having to contain reflections. You're talking about anechoic chamber. The Grammy museum in a lot of spaces isn't an anechoic chamber. So how are you uh, making sure the integrity of the content survives? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And it, it comes up a lot um, with, I'll go to audio, but with video, you know, if an artist makes a film in the late or early 90s and it's filmed on mini DV and then you try to put it on a 4K TV, it just, it's not the same. Um, and so in order to preserve that, um, a lot, oftentimes within museums, they have a collection of CRT monitors that they keep in pristine shape um, in order to show the content on the same device that it would have been viewed at the time so that then you almost are teleported back in time to that moment when it came out. So um, there's a, a whole history behind that and there's even a digital um, video archivists who are now preserving, you know, at MoMA and Whitney and a lot of these bigger institutions who are going through the archive and these older video files, how they were transferred, the method in which they were transferred, the codex, gathering all the metadata for it and preserving it so that in 25, 30 years, if you can't open it on QuickTime or whatever, because whatever program it is you're trying to open this digital file on doesn't work anymore, you can backtrace it and then resurrect the artwork later on in time. So the, there's a really great, um, there's some organizations and some really great companies who help museums um, sustain their digital archive. Um, I just try to do as close to one to one as I can with video. If I can upgrade the resolution, I usually um, will if it makes sense, but it goes back to an analogy um, that one of my former bosses said that really stuck to me and he said, you know, you can't put jet fuel in a Honda because it'll still be a Honda. And as soon as you start to <laughs> think yeah. about that, it's like, okay, I can make it do all these things, but actually it was recorded in mono and it's from the seventies and it's just actually gonna look better on a tiny old CRT monitor. So yeah. um, video is, is one part of it, but then with audio, like you're seeing the flat surfaces of the museum, we have some carpet, um, but that's um, mostly it for sound mitigation. Um, yep. We just recently, last year did a major renovation of our third floor and the audio mitigation was a huge part of the conversation um, because music it's as, as a medium it's such an individual experience but also we're asking the community to come together in one space and to share the love of music and the history of it so you have to delineate what's an individual experience versus a group experience um, thankfully the Grammy Museum has a really strong partnership with JBL and Harmon and um, I worked with some really great integrators um, to bring the sound, um, to identify each of those regions and then to be able to control it in different ways using the speakers. And uh, we have a more centralized um, build in the museum. And so working with them to figure out, yeah, what needs to be blasted, what, what surfaces are here and there, and then using very more concentrated and directional speakers in moments where it's just for a couple of people but we worked really hard to not have any headphones on the third floor, which That's was a cool. big challenge. Um, and now it's the, paying off now. <laughs> yeah. In the, I was going to say in the post COVID <laughs> museum, we're renovating our fourth floor to also have no headphones as well. Um, it, it's, there is no real formula for it. It is just um, building, trying to build walls in the, the proper places and, trying to use the right speakers for those specific applications. Yeah, that's can, an interesting- Can I ask a question, Mark? No. 
<laughs> yes, you can. Of course. What, what are you, I can't believe you even paused for that. I just wanted to insert it's, some awkwardness there. It's Canada, it's Canada Day. You can do whatever you want. Um, so, and, and hopefully, I mean, I don't want to get you in any, any sort of trouble here, Kelsey, but you know, what, what would be interesting to me is with you, you, no one would have to sell you on, it sounds to me like no one would have to sell you to the idea of um, the, the value of accuracy and the value of the right technology to produce what you want. How does that same mentality go to the people, unless you're completely in charge of the budget and just given a, you know, a black American Express and said, giver. Um, but how does that same mentality transfer to the people that, that are the decision makers that on the budget and that, that do allocate funds there? Because if they're not as involved, or, or they are, I suppose, but if they're not as involved as you, do they still put the same value on, on, on replication and, and reproduction of exhibits? Is that, did I, did yeah. I say that right? Yeah, that's all? a great question. Um, with the Grammy Museum, they do. It's a, it's a okay. music museum. It's supposed to have a certain phonic experience. So um, for me, and, and, you know, working in technology, I kind of joke, you know, that if everyone has a giant bag of money over their head, I'm just a pit in the ground. Um, I'm gonna spend your money, but I'm yeah. gonna make a case for spending it well. So a lot of times it's getting demos um, of equipment. Some, you know, with, with audio, sometimes you just have to hear it in order to experience it and to know that it's right. So ordering demos, um, working with vendors, I, I've worked really closely with Jibiel and Harman or Panasonic, um, different, companies that we've worked with in order to say, here's the space, Are, is the lumens correct? You know, can, you know, and they'll very gladly give me a projector for a week or so. Um, thankfully, they're just sure. up in Burbank and then I'll put it on the wall and everyone's like, oh, wow, that looks so great. You know, so it's a lot of metaphors for the people um, in charge. It's a lot of working with the different companies to figure out what exactly is right and then showing up and, you know, putting your, your word on the line I guess you know <laughs> uh, I yeah. remember I remember doing home audio um, you know when I first started AV I started in residential in Arizona during like the housing boom from 2002 to 2009 or so you know before the housing market fell apart um, but the interesting thing with what you just said you know sometimes you just have to hear it and you said that earlier you know sound is one of the most subjective things that we can experience um, we all have different hearing ranges we all interpret different frequencies different ways like there are certain things that are grating to one person that other people love to hear um, but that idea of, of hearing and seeing it like always doing the demo like if you're an integrator out there you know like your lesson is you know always do the demo like if you can get the projector in the space it's going to be used in like your level of setting the proper expectation just went through the roof, right? Because, you know, 10,000 lumens in your office in the back where the light's controllable is going to look a lot different than the same 10,000 lumens, you know, in the Grammy museum, right? If you're depending on where you're at. Um, but one of the audio folks that I, I was talking to um, way back when, um, we always did, you know, the good, better, best demo. We did the ABC, you know, side by side by side. And everybody always went up from whatever the base was to, to something. I mean, I don't think we ever sold the base level audio because once you heard it, um, it wasn't there. And I always remember, you know, I, I had some, I guess I had some resistance to that when I first started in AV because we were, 
we were dealing with some homes that were like these really high-end custom homes that people spent a ton of money. And we were spending some, you know, some other homes that were just very entry-level starter homes where people had, you know, FHA loans and things like that and just barely trying to get into the house. Like they're not going to spend a lot of money on that. Like they, everybody tells me they just want background music. And somebody told me once, and it always stuck with me, he's like, nobody wants background music. No. They're just telling you they don't want to spend a lot of money. And that was the, that was the thing. So, you know, give them the experience everybody's, you know, the, most people want their music to sound good, you know, so having them bring their own music to the meeting and playing it for them through different speakers was one of those things that like, oh no, I want that for sure. Like it's definitely worth the investment. So that's interesting that you do that in the museum with this other stakeholders who now, like you said, the Grammy museum completely different, right? Because music is the game. Yeah, and so, we're actually branched uh, with the Recording Academy. So yeah. you have the entire producers and engineering wing oh. of the Recording Academy who's going to walk through your space. Yeah. So sometimes you're just putting a monitor with a speaker. Um, however, we recently upgraded one of our experiences called Mono to Immersive, and this is a great example. Um, it goes through the history of recorded sound from a wax cylinder all the way up to now immersive sound. When the museum first opened, it was up to 5.1. Yep. Um, and so we worked with two engineers, um, um, Glenn and Eric from the Academy, and they um, mixed a great Grammy performance. So they, they took a performance, let's say um, Lady Gaga's performance, and they put filters on it and, and mixed it in a way that when it first comes on, it sounds like it's coming from a wax cylinder, it's in mono. And then as the song progresses, it goes through um, 33, through cassette, um, you know, into stereo, and then it turns into 5.1 around you in the space, and then it transitions into, or it goes down to MP3, which is really interesting because you just hear how terrible things sound in your earbuds. <laughs> All your compression. Yeah, and then it, it blasts up to immersive audio, um, and it's 9.1.4. We specifically designed the room for this experience. Um, we worked with um, acoustical consultants, um, Chips Davis, and then our IPR, who was our integrator, then with JBL and Harmon, and brought this huge team together to say, okay, this is what the experience is. And thankfully, with uh, my background in 3D modeling, I was able to take the 3D model and start to show how it would all come together. And then we um, contracted a creative firm through Gensler, and then they did a lot of the, um, we have, there's four projectors in the room, um, and essentially, I'm going to try to describe this as quickly as I can, but you have a four-walled room, door on one side. When you, when you walk in, the main screen you're trying to watch is directly in front of you, and there's a kiosk in the middle. So you choose your performance, and when that happens, the first wall lights up, and when it does, the performance comes on the screen, and these uh, really great graphic lines in the middle are synced to the sound in mono and it's um, hovering over a speaker. You don't know there's a speaker behind because the walls are covered in projection material. So it's indicating that it's playing from one speaker from behind where the lines are. And then as it grows, the lines then cover the two speakers outside of it. And then as the sound grows, it's 5.1 and immersive. So by the time you're at the end of the performance, you're completely submersed in a visual um, representation of audio while also watching the video at the same time. And Gensler worked with us to create those um, graphics and to sync it to the tablet and worked with our integrator to sync it back. We played it on an Alcor McBride um, yep. 
player and made video the bin whole loop. team pulled it together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The bin loop. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so it was a really great example of how sometimes, you know, an AV you're just installing speakers, you know, um, but this was a really great project to bring everyone from their diverse backgrounds to weigh in to say, the speakers have to be at this angle and tuned at this height. And then, you know, the, the, but the projectors, because of their fans, we ha they have their own air conditioning system mm -hmm. in the plenum. And then to say, okay, well, these projectors have to be seamlessly blended together. And what does that look like? And, and it was a really, really great project where I had the most fun just, oh, yeah. um, getting everyone to talk and figuring out what everyone's needs are and then and the schedule. Um, and it's really impactful because kids who have never heard a cassette or don't know what it is, they go in and then they learn, oh, like sound is, it wasn't just always like this. It started with having to crank a wax cylinder back in the day. Um, and now this is what we have. And also if you've never heard immersive audio, unless you're in a theater, you get the experience to, to feel that. So that's, that's awesome. I, two, I've two got things on that. No, you go, go ahead, Jared. No, you, 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 no, it, it's well, Canada day. It I is defer to you. <laughs> I defer. No, all I was going to say was two things is one that exhibit sounds amazing to experience. And, and two, I'm thankful that we don't have descriptive audio because if, if someone had to narrate all of Kelsey's hand motions, when she was describing where everything is, that would, that, that would just be crazy <laughs> trying to navigate. I thought she was doing the Madonna Vogue dance, like the old oh, like yeah. frame your face with your hands. No, I, I'm too young to know what that is, Mark. Yeah, you're, I, you're both too young. I, I forgot. I'm the resident old guy. I don't know any of that. I, the token old guy. I only saw it on a CRT at the Grammy Museum. That's the only reason <laughs> that I know what it looks like. Um, two things that I saw that, that I picked up on, and I know we, we, we don't want to hold you all morning, but two things yeah. I picked up on, um, and they both have to do with content. Um, you know, I hear a lot of integrators, you know, out there when you ask them about if they're thinking about getting into content or what their relationship with content is when they're installing AV systems, especially in corporate. Now you're in a museum where, you know, I think it's the museum space, it is content driven. I mean, it, like you said, the museum space is an interesting space because, you know, uh, the museum has artifacts. They go to an exhibit designer and say, hey, here's our space and here's here are the artifacts and the story we want to tell. How do we best use space to tell the story around these physical objects? And you're creating a location for people that can only come to see that there, which I love about what you did with this mono to immersive. I mean, that's something you can only do in that room. And even if you put it online and showed them the video and whatever, you can't recreate that, you know, through your laptop. You have to go to the museum to experience that. Um, but one of the things I find is interesting is most of the time, a lot of integrators I've talked to have been really, really resistant to either get into content or even to, even to really um, dive in with the client about what they're going to be playing on the systems that they're delivering. They just, they deliver something to a spec, but they don't deliver something to the intent of what's being shown through it. Do you, do you see that as like a, I mean, when you pick it, like you you mentioned an integrator, I think IPB, right? That you guys used. Is IPR, that what you, yeah. IPR, sorry. Um, I, acronyms, this, this acronym world. If they had a real name, I would have remembered it. If it was Bob, I would have remembered, you know, but IP, okay, IPR. But you mentioned an integrator like IPR. They obviously, I would assume, have a different mindset when they're going into a job than somebody that you would pick up off of like the SCN 50, you know, top 50 commercial integrators in the country type, type crew. Are you seeing that with like, 
your people, I mean, content seems to be, if you don't, if you don't understand the intent of the space, it is hard to design an AV system that's actually going to fulfill what they want. You mentioned another thing that was interesting, which was um, the CRT. Like you have content that looks for, for better or worse, bad. It's old DV video, like by, by standards of resolution, color space, all those things today, the content isn't, isn't as full range as what we're, we expect to see. But by framing it properly and playing it through the proper equipment, nobody would spec a CRT anywhere. None of, you know, the, the XYZ AV company out here would not expect a, a CRT, but by doing that, like you said, you almost, you reframe the expectation of what the content should look like with the viewer of it. Like, how are you, how are you navigating those things? Or do you think integrators should be more involved in content like out in our space and be more mindful of it when they're designing things? You, you think that's a gap in our industry? Um, I would say at least ask more questions, even if they don't feel like they're gonna insert something. Um, I tend to go in with a pretty open mind about it. Um, so I think it still boils down to your relationship with the integrator. Um, I think, you know, sometimes I'll go and I'll say, hey, I need this equipment. This is just what I need. Can you help me get a quote on it? Um, and then I'll, I'll install it. And sometimes I'll say, hey, we have this space. This is what I'm thinking. What do you think about this and also can your team aid in installing this equipment um so i think it's just your working relation for me at least it's my working relationship sometimes it's cut and dry and sometimes it's like hey let's collaborate a little um but managing those expectations and those roles because once you start having role ambiguity especially in the type of work that i do where i'm, I'm bringing the team together to make a vision come to life as soon as there is role ambiguity that's when I kind of, you know, will step in and say like, I really, I see what you're doing here. This is really great. Um, this is a really great monitor. You're right. It's the latest edition. It's going to look gorgeous. There is no doubt in my mind. However, what we're doing here is this. So can we consider something else? Um, I see where it's a gap, but I also see sometimes where we all just kind of need, like, sometimes I don't know what the latest technology is in, in something. And I'm like, hey, is there something else we could be doing here? You know, so um, it is a gap, but also it, it just depends on who you're working with. I also, yeah. I also get the sense that in the, in the museum industry or in, in, in your field, and we'll, we'll throw Chris Neto out for this one. It seems like we mention him in every, in every, uh, in every show, but he's going to, he's going to get started on the good enough, you know, and that's, that's one thing I feel like in your industry, Kelsey, in the museum side, especially because you're trying to reproduce artwork and, and you're very experienced focused is I don't think good enough can exist in your world. Whereas if you transfer to the corporate side, like you were saying, Mark, um, you know, how do you, how do you, I think that's the biggest challenge people face is you, you, we still deal with clients that, your, your clients are never going to say, oh, that's, I, I can't imagine. Maybe there are some that say, oh, that's good enough. It doesn't have to be perfect. You know, and, and we see that on the corporate side where it's like, oh yeah, that, that system's good enough for what we're doing, you know? And it's like, how do you push people beyond good enough to know? Like you want the experience. This is how you get the experience. Like how, how do you, yeah. how, does good enough exist in the museum world? Um. Not in the museum world I've been in, thankfully. There are, yeah. you know, the the pop-up museums. I can't really speak for them, but sure. thankfully the industries that or the 
the entities I've worked for have been pretty high standards and high caliber. Um, I, I think also what you're talking about is like a threshold too. You know, how do you get them past that threshold? Yeah. Um, sometimes I think um, acknowledging the future investment or the pros of what it will be in the long term or the return on investment um, can be helpful as well. When I first came to the Grammy Museum, it needed a lot of um, just tech upgrades in the server room. And so I, you know, it was like a little fix there, a little fix there. But if we didn't really overhaul the system, it was a ticking time bomb with any other tech, you know. So um, getting past that threshold of like, well, it'll sustain us for this long, true. But if we don't plan for it next year, we could be in a problem. And, and the thing about museums that's really tricky is that um, maybe also like retail spaces, it has to be live all the time. So there is an expectation that when I get in the morning and turn the museum on, if something doesn't work, I have a certain time period to get it fixed before 250 kids start running. Well, now it will be less because of COVID. But <laughs> people start walking with their socially distanced six foot circle respectfully through yeah. the museum. Um, and that's another conversation too of interactives in the museum, how we're approaching that technology post COVID, um, not just audio and visual, but all of our tablets and touch screens and trying to be mindful of that as well. But um, you have to get it fixed and you have to make sure it's running and it runs all day. That's why I do love the Alcor McBride because I don't have to worry about that thing. But when I first started in this industry, um, we were putting Mac minis behind monitors and just praying the hard drive didn't start stuttering. Yeah. Um, and then we, we started kind of trying to hack into a Raspberry Pi to see if we could get um, it to be a media player without having to invest in a, a digital signage machine. And then Mika players came out and bright sign players are, are now kind of our, our standard, I would say, but um, you want, you have this desire to make sure it works. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that's, uh, that is an interesting point about museums. Number one, the opening date is real. You know, people, people are going to be buying tickets to come through the space um, and they paid to see the exhibits. And so the exhibits need to work, like you said, every day. There's no, there's no 15, oh, we, well, the meeting didn't work that day in that room. Um, there is none of that, you know, that's acceptable and creating a, a system that works in that way. You mentioned Alcorn McBride. The, the only reason I knew, the reason I knew Alcorn McBride, and it wasn't actually from my museum space. I, I learned about Alcorn McBride in my um, residential days where we did a community center. And this was before they had a lot of the video wall. Well, they did have some really high-end video wall processors, but um, this, uh, this home builder talking about thresholds, they were in this mode of good enough. Like how do we spend $20,000 in this room, but get a 20 foot arc of video to go around this, this, uh, this oval shaped room. And uh, so what we actually did was built a, a video wall with, with 60 inch, you know, plasmas at the time. They didn't, LCDs weren't even a thing. Um, 60 inch plasmas all the way around the room, you know, edge to edge to edge. Um, How much backing did you need for that? Well, we had to plane out the wall like crazy, oh, right? Because it, it was the a weight of the weight yeah. of those. And plasmas. it wasn't a constant, it's an oval. So it's not a constant curve, right? So everyone was in a different, at a different angle yeah. to each other, some real tight in the middle. And then, they, then they, they, the angles decreased as you got around the edges, but trying to get those monitors to all work in tandem, you know, we, we tried a couple different windows server, pieces and things like that. And we couldn't get anything to work. And this is where I really, this is where I really found out like that content mattered. 
and that I needed to know a little bit more about content to help the content provider do this because they wanted to create videos, you know, where a swimmer would swim through all 10 screens and then maybe fireworks would start going off or then maybe pictures would float of the community around or um, a golf course pan all the way up. And uh, in order to do that, like we were working with uh, this company out of San Diego at the time called Digital Outpost. I don't know if they're still around. They used to do a lot of work with the police departments, but um, because the company was San Diego based, this home designer, they, they found them and uh, they were doing all the content. And so when we did get the Alcorn McBride uh, video bin loop, if you don't know what this is, Jared, what it is, is it's, it's a, it has a lot of compact flash slots in it. So you can do like one that has 16 compact flash slots in it. And then what you do is you actually create the video in pieces per those outputs. So at the time this was all RGB out or not RGB, could it be RGB or component video? You could switch it back and forth. But um, we were using component video on plasma TVs. So you have 16 component video outputs on this thing. You put 16 compact flashcards in it and each one of those was a 720p file. So they mastered this thing in a, in really in a um, 160 by nine resolution, broke it up into 16 by nine chunks. You name all the files the same thing and the Alcor McBride actually clocks them all and then uses one audio file. So it syncs all of the 16 cards, frame syncs them to the screens, and then creates this one piece of video out of these 16 flashcards, which is really cool. Glad you you know, to me but it's, but it, sorry, but it's, but it's a, it's a, the reason I say, the reason I wanted to bring it up is like, if you were an integrator and you were just asked to provide video distribution to 16 displays in a video wall, but you don't understand that it's a 160 by nine piece of content that's being broken up into 10 pieces and that need to be frame synced. All of a sudden you, you, your solution is not the right solution if you're just picking things that you would normally pick for a 16 screen video matrix, right? All of a sudden you have to know a little bit more about what's being done with it and what is being delivered to each of those displays in order to be a good partner to somebody like Kelsey, who's maybe looking to do this, right? So it's the reason I always harp on content. People get mad at me because I always say that integrators should know a lot about content and they go, no, our partners do that. I'm like, no, you should kind of know some of it too, <laughs> you know, even if you're not providing it. It's, it's something you really need to know if you're going to do some of these higher end jobs, but yeah, it just, it just mixes with intent, right? It's, it's what's the intent and content is part of that. Yes. Yeah, and even the, the content too, that we're showing it's translated from a, a broadcast performance. So you even have to think about the, can this player do 2997? How yep. does it do it? You know, and then how does that sync together? So even to that degree of thinking, what was, what was the original video shot on? now that's on a projector and then now it's going to be played. Yeah. And you can even get weird things like depending on how the displays are, if they're, you know, if you have vertical, you don't want them, um, you don't want them all scanning at the same time. You may want a slight delay in the frame for the second so that your scan lines travel down through the whole display and not just through a monitor. Otherwise you have like rolling lines, you know, in parallel between all these faces. Um, it's interesting. I, I can't go all day. I, we have, we're going to have to wrap. We're keeping Kelsey way too long. We're yeah. going to have to wrap this. The show can't go I'm very longer glad than that this, you explained. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I am happy that you explained to us what the, what an Alcornic bride was because I, I, I didn't know what it was. I, I, 
I, it sounded more like a breakfast order at McDonald's to me, but, um, <laughs> so I, I am glad you explained that to me because that's before, I, I believe that device is before my time. It, it, no, it's different than what you eat on Canada Day for breakfast, the, the acorn McMuffin. No, the it's acorn an alcorn McBride, not an acorn McMuffin. Extra syrup. Thanks. Thanks for well, celebrating Canada Day. Yeah. Day yeah. Yeah. Well, happy I, Canada Day to everybody. Um, Kelsey that was awesome. and I. Yeah, we sh we the one we can we can celebrate because our no I would just say because our our abbreviation for our state is CA just like the abbreviation for your country, so it's exactly. identical. We're all Canadians in a way. In fact, I give you both permission to call your boss and be like, "Hey, I'm celebrating Canada Day today, so I won't be in." That perfect, love it. <laughs> <laughs> and you tell them they call me if they have any problems. They call me. Yes, call Jared. He's in his yeah. he's in his flannel and fur PJs. And I'll, and I'll apologize for you. You'll you'll send the official the official <laughs> letter um, yeah. with the maple leaf stamped on it, saying we have yeah. a reprieve for today. Well, hey Kelsey, thanks for joining us. Everybody, thanks for joining us on AV Daybreak. Hopefully, uh, you met an awesome person and learned some stuff. And uh, we hope to see you here again next week. Take care, everybody. Thanks. I'm not going to do that.